Back in February, the federal government announced uh, legislation that would create a commission, an independent commission, on the issue of wrongful convictions. The idea being that it could lead to more quickly resolved cases, uh, also assist people who have been wrongly convicted in trying to transition back into some sort of uh, normal life. But, I mean, it illustrates that this remains a problem. And it's not just something we had to deal with in the past. It's an ongoing challenge for a justice system. No justice system is perfect. Maybe it's inevitable that some will fall through the cracks. But it's important to understand how and why these things happen. Why it's such a miscarriage of what we understand to be justice. and Why there should be some urgency in doing what we can to at least minimize instances of wrongful conviction. And do right by those who are victimized. It's an important new book out uh, on the topic by someone who's uh, one of the leading experts uh, on this subject. It's called Wrongfully Convicted, Guilty Pleas, Imagine Crimes, and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard Justice. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the book's author, Kent Roach, law professor at the University of Toronto. Professor Roach, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. You know, you, we, we have some, some high-profile cases. There are cases you talk about in the book that maybe Canadians aren't as familiar with, but we can put names to, to a lot of these cases. But... It's probably just the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, do we have any idea in terms of sheer numbers or percentage, like how many there have been or how often this happens? No, no, we, 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 we don't. I mean, a, cons- a very conservative estimate would be uh, half of a, per- of a percent of all criminal cases. And, uh, you know, given the criminal cases that are dealt with, that could result in, thousands of wrongful convictions each year and as i said that's a you know a very conservative estimate yeah and there's also you know there's different kinds of wrongful convictions and and that's part of what you lay out in the book that maybe we think of it as sort of the uh, you know the the wrong person or the, you know we got the wrong person kind of wrongful conviction but that's not the only kind why is it important to understand the the different forms in, in which this this happens yeah, no, I mean, the wrong person, wrongful conviction, you know, does happen. We think of the David Milgard case as an example. But I'm a little worried that it's it's become almost a form of entertainment. It, 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 it dovetails too nicely with mystery novels and mystery movies. And so uh, along with some colleagues at the University of Toronto, we, uh, we compiled uh, the database of uh, known and remedied wrongful convictions. And we launched in February with 83, although we've added four more uh, since that time. And of course, that's only the tip of the iceberg. But when you look at those, and this is consistent with what an American registry has found, uh, 15 of them were guilty plea wrongful convictions. And many of those, and in fact, a third of all 83 cases, were cases where crimes never happened. And so these are, I think, more difficult for the public to understand. Why would an innocent person ever plead guilty? How could someone be convicted, given that we have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt of a crime that never happened? So that's really why uh, I talk about those cases first before I discuss the the more well-known wrong person, wrongful convictions. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, the, you, you have a quote from Donald Marshall, of course, another high-profile example where, you know, he even says, I did not want to get out for manslaughter, that he refused to, to accept a plea deal. And maybe that's the sort of image we associate with, with someone who's been wrongfully accused of a crime, that sort of defiance that, look, I didn't do this, and I'm not going to say that I did just to get a lighter sentence. But, you know, as much as it's an understandable sentiment, uh, you know, it... There are circumstances that come into play, and as counterintuitive as it might seem to us, there are all kinds of reasons why someone would confess or plead guilty to something they didn't do. Yes, and, and you know, uh, the, the book talks about how you look at the Charles Smith baby death cases, and you really see this, is that many of the young mothers and racialized men, when they had a chance, pled guilty to manslaughter or infanticide, which doesn't have a mandatory penalty. Uh, Tammy Marcard, who was a young indigenous mother, uh, uh, like Donald Marshall, uh, refused to take a manslaughter plea. Uh, her, her lawyers, one lawyer told her she should take it, another lawyer told her, uh, uh, another one of her lawyers told her she shouldn't. And as she said, the truth didn't set me free, the truth gave me a life sentence. So she ended up in uh, the prison for women uh, in an isolation cell with uh, Carla Homolka, in part because uh, she trusted the system to get the right result. And it was only many years later that her conviction was overturned when other forensic pathologists looked at Dr. Smith's expert testimony and held that it, it just didn't hold up. I mean, you know, it's part of it is the process, right? Because we could go through, we could look at the police, judges, juries, prosecutors, defense, everything else. But you do wonder in terms of the defense that people are able to mount. If if one has unlimited resources to, to be able to hire the, the best lawyers that are out there, hire private investigators, uh, the odds are much more favorable of avoiding a wrongful conviction. How how much is that a part of all of this? And, and how do we even begin to, to mitigate that side of things? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. And, and, I mean, we try to measure socioeconomic status in the registry, but it's it's somewhat difficult. Mm-hmm. But, but you, you know, you uh, 16 of the 83 are Indigenous people. Uh, probably the most advantaged uh, uh, person who is in the registry is a man called Jacques Delisle, uh, who was a... Um, judge of the Quebec Court of Appeals. So he uh, really sticks out as one of the few kind of powerful people. And uh, But again, he was convicted by a jury in part because his family came and told, asked him not to testify uh, because it would bring further attention to his grandchildren who were getting teased in school and so on. And so he made a decision, probably a tactical decision, uh, a tactical mistake in the end not to uh, to um, uh, testify, and he was convicted by a Quebec jury. But, you know, far more likely is a case of someone uh, like Connie Oakes uh, from Alberta, uh, who uh, also didn't testify, but if she had testified, her criminal record may very well have been introduced in evidence. And of course, the judge can tell the jury only use this criminal record to determine 
whether uh, someone like Miss Oaks is telling the truth or not, but there's there's really no guarantees mm-hmm. that that will happen. Yeah, and these other factors that come into play is an interesting term you use. You, you know, you talk about thinking dirty, how investigators do that or prosecutors do that or even society or the media do that, these kind of assumptions and suspicions we make. And that may be based on maybe it is race or socioeconomic status or age or background or a lot of these other factors where we just we, we kind of assume the worst and, and it pushes things in, in a certain direction. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and I, I, I think when you look at the Smith cases, many of these people were um, uh, had, had drawn the attention of child welfare services. In some cases, uh, uh, Charles Smith noted that their apartments were messy and unclean. And, 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 and so, yes, it definitely can be raised, but it can be a whole lot of intangibles. And there's been some recent uh, studies with forensic pathologists which have suggested if they're given the same scenario and told that the caregiver was a black boyfriend of the mother as opposed to the grandmother of the child, they're much more likely to conclude that it was the black boyfriend who was responsible for death as opposed to the uh, Caucasian grandmother. You mentioned Dr. Charles Smith, a pathologist who was for a long time seen as a very credible witness in in a lot of these cases, and it was his uh, supposed expertise that led to some of these wrongful convictions. It wasn't until much later uh, that we started to refer to him as a disgraced pathologist. So you, you talk about these kinds of cases where there are invented crimes, crimes that never happened, and people wonder, well, how can that possibly be? I mean, look no further than, than Dr. Charles Smith. Yes, and, and I mean, I, I was research director for the Gouge Commission, which looked at forensic pathology from 2007 to 2008, but I wanted to revisit it in this case because uh, the commission wasn't really able fully to tell the stories of all of the wrongfully convicted people that came from the Charles Smith case case cases because they were still being corrected at that time. I mean, it's a, it's a truism that it takes a lot longer to undo a wrongful conviction than to commit one. And then, you know, one of the kind of shocking things that I found is, of course, there were subsequent wrongful convictions coming from the mother risk lab, which, like Charles Smith, was embedded in the hospital for sick children. And so in our registry, we show that the most wrongful convictions, the most remedied wrongful convictions are from Ontario. But I, I'm not sure that means the Ontario system is worse than Alberta's system. I think what that means is there's more resources. There's, there were four inquiries held into uh, um, labs uh, or, or centers associated with the hospital for sick children. Uh, and most wrongful conviction lawyers, James Lockyer being an example who wrote the foreword to the book, are centered in uh, in um, Ontario, and of course, the late Hirsch Walsh was a very important uh, wrongful conviction lawyer from Western Canada. But you know, I really worry about where the next generation of of, of these lawyers are coming from. Mm-hmm. 
And, and dealing with these cases once we're confronted with them, I mean, you know, you, you draw a distinction between, you know, someone who's released versus someone who's exonerated. What does the, the process need to be in terms of, of addressing these cases? Well, that's, that's, that's a, a good and difficult question. I mean, we define wrongful convictions in the registry as someone who is convicted, but then is either acquitted or not prosecuted on the basis of new evidence relating to guilt or innocence. So we do allow the system uh, to correct itself through an appeal, and the system sometimes does. But often you find, and this is the case in the Connie Oaks and Wendy Scott case, prosecutors sometimes stay prosecutions, and it doesn't even allow the person to have a not guilty uh, verdict. And so exoneration is actually not a formal legal mechanism in Canada. And it really kind of depends upon how society views people. And the fact that about half of the wrongfully convicted never receive compensation also reflects that they may still feel like there are suspicions hanging over them. And we're careful to say that, you know, we're not saying that the wrongfully convicted are or are not factually innocent. It's, it's just that our legal system, rightly or wrongly, doesn't make determinations of factual innocence. So this does leave, I think, a wiggle room. And this is also where imagined crimes and our suspicions still linger. Because when I've talked to the wrongfully convicted, uh, many of them want some form of formal exoneration because they kind of think that their neighbors and their employers are still somewhat suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. Right. Ideally, we'd prevent these from happening in the first place, but maybe if that were easy, we would have figured it out some time ago. How do we go about preventing this? Well, I mean, I think we, 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 we can't rely upon, you know, organizations like Innocence Canada and the UBC Innocence Project, which are charities that are really running on, on a threadbare budget. And because of that, can't afford to make a mistake and often focus only on people that are serving long sentences, often for murder. So before Parliament, uh, there is now a, a bill, Bill C-40, that proposes to create a miscarriage of justice review commission, and Minister of Justice Lametti has secured a $19 million budget. So this will be <clears throat> an organization that can uh, investigate claims of wrongful conviction on the public dime, so 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 to to speak, and basically eight different commissions in Canada have called for this since 1989. The Brits have had one since 1997. <clears throat> so here we are in 2023 without one. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book is. You know, I'm I'm worried that this is not going to be a political priority. It hasn't been in the past, and it might die on the order table before we go into a federal election. Well, the book is called Wrongfully Convicted, Guilty Pleas, Imagined Crimes, and What Canada Must Do to Safeguard Justice. Kent Roach, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Kent Roach, uh, professor of law at the University of Toronto, uh, leading uh, expert and scholar on the topic of wrongful convictions. And uh, his new book is called Wrongfully Convicted.
So it's an interesting look at the problem, the different forms in which it takes, but essentially it all comes down to the same principle, uh, that our system does fail. And the result is that we're putting somebody behind bars who didn't do anything. And that may be because somebody else did the crime. We got the wrong person. Maybe it's that there was no crime in the first place. Look up the case of William Mullins Johnson, which is, you know, one of the more horrifying examples of this that he talks about in the book. It does happen. It still happens. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Much more still to get to. Uh, A fascinating new book out this week, looking at Canada's connections to the U.S. Civil War and specifically the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We don't often talk about the U.S. Civil War when we talk about Canadian history. But there's very much, uh, well, not just a Canadian connection. I mean, Canadian connections at multiple levels, but also specifically when it comes to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, The book is called The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. Investigative journalist and author Julian Scher is the author of this book and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Julian, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you've done a lot of uh, investigative work on a number of fascinating topics, written a number of books. uh, But what got you interested in this topic specifically? Well, you know, I'm I'm well known for the books and documentaries I've done on the Hells Angels and on the Stephen Truscott case. Um, But regardless of what I've been doing, I'm always interested, if you want, in the dark side of our society. You know, the myths or the lies we tell ourselves and trying to uncover some uncomfortable truths about Canada and and our society. And when when it comes to the American Civil War, if if Canadian Canadians think about it at all, we think, um, and not incorrectly, that we were on the good side. We were the terminus for the Underground Railroad, right? Escaped slaves came in by the thousands. Canada's part of the British Empire. We had abolished slavery. And so if you made it, if you were a black escaped slave and you made it to Canada, you were free. And that's been made famous in movies and books. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But what you know, what what I try to tell in the North Star is there's a darker hidden history that most of the politicians, the bankers, the newspapers, the church leaders, in fact, despised Lincoln and supported the South. And Canada became a kind of uh, a kind of bastion, a, a hidden haven for Confederate mercenaries and plotters people today we would consider terrorists and i think it's important we kind of listen to our past yeah and it's interesting because it wasn't just a, an enemy of our enemy kind of thing i mean you know part of the british empire canada was at the time as you noted and you know canada or rather you know britain and the united states weren't exactly friends so it wasn't just that we were supporting an enemy of our enemy there there was genuine sympathy for the confederate cause there was, there was. I, I, I mean, you know, uh, think about it. Uh, you know, we're 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 in late April now. Go back a couple of weeks to April fifteenth, and then go back uh, another hundred and fifteen years. Hundred and fifty years. If you were in Canada on the weekend of April fifteenth, April sixteenth, April seventeenth, 
and you were reading newspapers in Canada. Lincoln had just been assassinated on Friday, April 14th. Let me quote you from the Toronto Leader, one of the main newspapers. It said, it should not be forgotten that all such deeds as assassination, there is some cause. And they blamed Lincoln for the harsh treatment of the oppressed people of the South. Um, one of the other papers in Canada denounced Lincoln as a mad blood-stained despot at at Washington. So that's you know that's not the image we have of Canada, but that's what the, most of the newspapers were were saying at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this had consequences because it meant that Confederates who were fighting a life and death battle to save slavery, they could come to Toronto and Montreal. Some of them went out west, but Canada was still centered in in what we now know as Ontario and Quebec, they could come here and operate here, bank here, launder their money here, and stage terror raids from Canada, much to the fury of, of Lincoln and the Northern Americans. Yeah, you, you describe Montreal at, at the time as, as like Casablanca. It was, um, and and if Montreal was Casablanca, the 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 Dooley's Bar was Rick's Cafe. So Montreal was Casablanca was filled with hundreds of Confederates. And in October, just before a few months before Lincoln is going to be assassinated, who comes to Montreal? One of the most famous actors of his time, John Wilkes Booth, mm-hmm. a star of stage. He's known everywhere. He gets one of the best rooms at one of the most luxurious hotels. Uh, the owner calls him such a gifted man. He hangs out and plays cards with Confederates. He gets the names of a couple of key people in the Confederate network that he will use the night he escapes after assassinating Lincoln. And at one point he goes into the Rick's Cafe at the time, right? It's wartime, into Dooley's Bar, and he plays billiards. And he boasts, Lincoln is up for re-election in a couple of weeks, and he boasts openly. He says, and these are his words, doesn't matter what happens, Abe's contract is up, his goose is cooked. And the, the man he's playing pool with, who happens to be a Canadian pool champion, writes about that after Lincoln's assassination a few months later because he knows he knows what it means. Yeah, it wasn't just John Wilkes Booth. I mean, you tell the story in, in 1864 of how Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederate States of America, uh, dispatched uh, a trusted ally to Canada. That's right. Uh, right, and with the express purpose of, of, of setting up a secret service operation. Davis, uh, the Confederates were losing the war by about 1864, or at least not winning it. They were originally. You know, now we look back in history and we know Lincoln won and, and the, the Confederacy was defeated. But back then it wasn't clear. The slave South was, 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 was going strong. Davis puts aside $1 million in money back then, which is like $16 million today, uh, to set up a foreign secret service. Most of that money uh, goes to Canada. There are bank accounts I show in the book where um, a bank run by the mayor of Montreal launders something like $600,000 for the Confederates. And what do they do with that money? They launch an attempt to burn down New York City. There's an attempt by a leading doctor to poison, to send can, in in. Uh, clothing he thought was infected with yellow fever and ship it from Canada into the United States he hoped that would kill thousands of people um, and there was a bank raid uh, uh, organized from Canada uh, against a small town in Vermont they robbed three banks kill 
a um, an innocent bystander. And when they come back to Canada, they're captured, they're put on trial. We acquit them on a technicality. And the police chief is later for, in Montreal was forced to resign because it's found out that he was holding the money they had stolen. These are Confederate mercenaries had stolen it from uh, Vermont. Um, he had arranged to hold it in the bank that was laundering the money for the Confederates. And the, the minute the, the Confederates were acquitted, they run to the bank and, in effect, steal the money a second time. And you know what happens after that? Lincoln imposes passports <laughs> between Canada and the U.S. So you can thank the Confederates for that. Yeah, the, the juxtaposition, though, and you, you alluded to it, where, you know, Canada was uh, a haven for, uh, you know, escaped slaves, right? We had the Underground Railroad. We had, you know, Canadians, sort of ordinary Canadians, signing up for the Union cause. We had Canada's Absolutely. two first black doctors offer their services. Right. And yet we also had, we were providing refuge, as you say, uh, to leading Confederates at the same time. And I, I think that's what the book is about. You know, one of the characters, she's a woman from New Brunswick, a Canadian woman who disguises herself as a man so she could join the Union Army to fight for Lincoln's cause. She becomes, when she reveals herself, eventually becomes one of the most famous women uh, in the uh, undercover in the Army. And as a Canadian, she says, it wasn't my war, but I had to decide what my role was. And I think that's what we still have to do today. Which side am I on? So while the bankers, the politicians, most of the newspapers were supporting the South, Thousands of Canadians, we estimate tens of thousands, joined uh, the Union Army, and the two most famous were two black doctors. One was an American who couldn't get educated in the States because of discrimination. He comes here to um, to Canada and becomes our first foreign doctor. His name was Dr. Augusta, and he mentors a Canadian-born black man who will be the first native-born black doctor, a man named um, Dr. Abbott, uh, Rufin Abbott, both the minute in 1863 that the Emancipation Proclamation is issued by Lincoln and Lincoln opens up the army to blacks. They sign up, they write to Lincoln, they get accepted, um, they have to fight discrimination in the Union Army, there's still segregation, um, but they become heroes. And at one point, as I recount in the book, they crash a party, <laughs> a levy that Lincoln is holding in the White House. So imagine, it's the North, but there's still a lot of racism these two handsome young uh, black doctors from Canada wearing Union uniforms come in. There's a hush in the room, yeah. and Lincoln goes over and shakes their hand. Wow. Um, so we should be proud of that, but we should also recognize the dark side of our history. Uh, George Brown is uh, father of Confederation, maybe under slightly different circumstances, might have been Canada's first prime minister. He stands yep. out here because, as you note in the book, I mean, the political class, the newspapers at the time were all pretty sympathetic to the Confederate cause. But George Brown stood out as, as an exception. He did. The Confederates were very pleased. You know, if you had asked um, Canadians today, we think we were on the good side. But if you had asked President Lincoln or Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, what they thought of Canada, they both would have said 
one would have thought it bad, the other would have thought it good, that Canada was a nest of Confederate spies and sympathies. And the Confederates sent a delegate out to check at public opinion, and he said, all the newspapers here support the South except one. And that one came with a loud voice. George Brown was the founder of the Globe, now the Globe and Mail, and he founded, he was one of the co-founders of the Anti-Slavery Society. He was an ardent abolitionist, and he campaigned for Lincoln and um, against slavery, but absolutely, he was he was a lone voice. And you know where the book ends after the war. The war is over. Canada, I think, has played a, a, a dubious role, except for some of the heroes like those black doctors. Jefferson Davis is the defeated president of the slave states, right? The enemy of Lincoln. Lincoln has been assassinated. Jefferson Davis um, is held in prison for two years, and they, the Americans want to put the Civil War behind them. They don't want to deal, and to this day, they don't want to deal with that, with that heritage. Jefferson Davis is, left, is let out on bail, and that night, where does he go? He doesn't go to Mississippi, doesn't go to Memphis. He takes a, strain, a train straight to Canada because that's where his family already is. He goes to Montreal. He goes to a theater when he's in Montreal, and the crowd breaks up, the play stops, and the orchestra starts playing, playing Dixie, and, and they applaud him. Then he goes to Toronto, and thousands turn out to cheer him. And he goes through St. Catherine and Niagara. New York Times talks about what a pleasant Confederate community there was in these small towns. And he's serenaded by um, the bands, and he says in really important words, he says, thank you, Canada, for being an asylum for me and my friends. Um, and that says a lot about the role we played in in uh, the Civil War. So even once the war was over, that, that sentiment was still very visible here. How, how quickly yeah. did things start to change that we really tried to just kind of pretend like all of that never happened? Well, there was an historical amnesia, I think, um, and in many ways continues to this day. But that lingered on. You know, some of the, the the Civil War is the only war that I know in history where the losers got to write the history. Right? Most of the time, it's the victors. Right? But with movies like Gone with the Wind, with kind of celebrated the 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 South, um, uh, there were monuments built to Confederate soldiers. It was called the Lost Cause. Right? Yeah. The Glorious Battle. You know, the current debate going on right now. Now in the states about um, uh, changing the uh, the history books and talking less about racism was actually started by the United Daughters of the Confederacy after the Civil War, where they said we have to be sure that the books don't uh, say that the South was on the losing side or on the wrong side. So it it continues to the state. And let me give you an example: 2017. Uh, 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 dying years of the Trump presidency. There's huge uproar. Confederate statues, right, are coming down. Mm -hmm. And there's a big debate as the U.S. has to grapple with the legacy of the Civil War. Well, I call up my daughter. I was working at CBC in Toronto at the time. I call up my daughter who's working at CBC in Montreal. And I tell her, you should check because Back in the day, I remember seeing a plaque for Jefferson Davis, the leader of the slave states, on the wall of the bay in downtown Montreal. And in 2017, it was still there, right? So talk about the past, right? And and because of inquiries by journalists, the bay took it down that day. But the point of the book is, you know, we can't just remove a plaque 
and forget that we honored the 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 slave south you know what i like to um recall is that uh, there was a, a little-known senator who was running for re-election, I think a man that uh, Abraham Lincoln would have been proud of. His name was Barack Obama. And in 2008, he makes a speech, one of his first speeches, and he quotes a famous a Southern author named William Faulkner. And I, I quote it in the, in the book, and he says, uh, Obama says, quoting Faulkner, the past is not dead, the past is not even past. And I think Obama was trying to signal that his country had to grapple uh, with uh, a tortured and difficult past. And I think we have to do the same in Canada. It's what makes us richer. Yeah. Well, the book is called The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. Julian, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for taking the time. Stay safe, everyone. All the best. Take care. Uh, Julian Scher, a veteran investigative journalist and author. His latest is mentioned called The North Star, Canada and the Civil War Plots Against Lincoln. And some of those Canadian connections to the Civil War uh, that maybe we don't talk a lot about. Right? We sort of have this convenient narrative that, look, we were the Brits. We were against slavery. We were on the right side of all of this. But, you know, the historical record is, is a little more complex than that. Century. Yeah, well, it kind of was the round of the century. Mind you, it was only 2002 when that happened, but uh, 21 years later, I think that still holds up. That is round nine from the first fight between Mickey Ward and Arturo Gotti. They fought a legendary trilogy. Who won each fight is almost kind of a moot point, uh, you know, given how legendary all of those fights were, but that round in particular. Uh, Mickey Ward, of course, uh, had a film made about him. Uh, Arturo Gotti was the much bigger star. And really emerged as a star in uh, kind of the late 1990s. The sort of fighter you couldn't look away from. The sort of fighter where you think he's about to get knocked out. You're waiting for the ref to stop. And somehow, out of nowhere, he comes back. And somehow, out of nowhere, manages to win. It it was always a thrill to watch Arturo Gotti fight. And he became a staple of uh, HBO's boxing programming in the late 90s and and early 2000s. Uh, From Montreal as well. So, uh, you know, a Canadian star, uh, born in Italy, uh, ended up living uh, mostly in in New Jersey once he became a professional boxer, but still very much uh, a legend uh, here in Canada and in Montreal in particular. Uh, So that was 2002. Seven years later, though, Arturo Gatti was found dead in Brazil. Very bizarre, mysterious, suspicious, arguably, circumstances. Uh, so a terrible end to what was really a remarkable life. Both the life and the death of Arturo Gotti, the subject of a new documentary, which has its world premiere this Saturday, the Calgary International Film Festival, 6.30 at the Globe Cinema. Our next guest will be there for a Q&A. May 3rd, 6 p.m. at the Metro Cinema in Edmonton is the Edmonton premiere. And then this documentary premieres on Super Channel starting on May 4th. It's called Thunder, The Life and Death of Arturo Gotti. Uh, joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon uh, is the director uh, of this documentary, Guillaume Carlier. Joining us here this afternoon, Guillaume, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much. 
Look, I mean, I'm a boxing fan. I I, I know well who Arturo Gatti was and, and just how, how fascinating and incredible a fighter he was. But for those who aren't familiar with uh, Arturo Gatti, the fighter, the man, what, what do people need to know about him? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. In Canada, I feel like um, it depends on maybe uh, what side of the country you're on. Because in Quebec, Arturo was a saint, basically. Yeah. He, was a, he was a huge hero. Um, in the rest of Canada, you know, I'm sure like in the boxing circles, people knew of him, but maybe some people don't. I, so sometimes the point of entry that I give people is, okay, well, if you know the film The Fighter, which stars Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale, they were pr- portraying Mickey Ward. And uh, Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti were known to have this trilogy of oh, fights yeah. that were considered the best in, in all boxing history. So he was, um, I think he was, the best way to put him to is that he was a bit of a pop culture icon in the 90s, and yeah. the, in the early 2000s, in the boxing scene. And uh, what makes him different, too, is that, you know, in the 90s and uh, 2000s, it was very much like Mike Tyson's era in terms of boxing. Arturo was bringing in as much money as Mike Tyson, but in the lightweight division. Yeah, what was remarkable about Arturo Gotti, because he was a blood and guts kind of fighter. Those those wars with Mickey Ward were just uh, incredible. Yeah. But he was seemed like such a gentle, soft-spoken guy. Like him and Mickey Ward became best friends, right? So the out-of-the-ring Arturo mm-hmm. Gotti seemed, you know, didn't match you know, the ferocity of the fighter. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, like in the course of making the documentary, um, I was... I have to say that I was impressed by how many people just loved him. People were devoted yeah. to Arturo. There's not many people that you meet in this life that, that have that kind of universal personal praise. You know, everyone's always got like some, some things that, you know, some skeletons in the closet. But Arturo, like, you know, he, there, was some, there was an open honesty about him. Even in his, um, uh, in his wayward ways, people still loved him. What got you interested in, in this story, wanting to tell this story, both, you know, letting people know who he was, but obviously investigating the, the very unusual circumstances under which he died? I mean, that's just it, right, is that um, as, as boxing fans know, Arturo was, was hugely popular. He was beloved. Uh, he's a Canadian hero. And then when he died in Brazil, it just seemed so circumspect and and sort of buttoned up a little bit a little bit put away you know it was strange and if you remember he died in 2009 in 2011 that's when cbc and cbs did their uh, reports on on his death Mm -hmm. and uh they never really chose a side they 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 they, it seemed to me that they were favoring this idea of suicide right but for a lot of people when when the details when the details were coming out of arturo's death and, and all of the um uh the evidence it always seemed uh, very flimsy. It seemed like a very flimsy um, conclusion. Well, and uh, maybe part of it is, you know, the assumption that you know boxers, former boxers, even you know financially successful, uh, end up having troubled lives afterwards. And Arturo Gotti was the kind of fighter where he absorbed a lot of punishment, and that's what made him yeah. so so appealing to fans. It's just how exciting his fights were. But you know that that all adds up. And I know there was some concern about his well-being after the you know he retired from the sport. I mean, what do we know about mm-hmm. what he was dealing with? Yeah. So in the documentary, we do we do give um, uh, some time to talk about CTE. So that's uh, in in other words, like uh, punch drunk syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, what, for what, for boxers where they experienced uh, reduced capacity, mental capacity. And um, and so we brought in some experts, uh, we, and we talked to Mickey Ward about this too. Mickey Ward comments that he has it as well, um, but it's it's very inconclusive as well. It's essentially the best that we can gather is that CTE manifests differently in different people. Everyone's brain is different. Um, so we we heard 
some anecdotes that said that Arturo's personality was uh, was maybe getting a little different, but no one really came forward to say like concretely like yes he was uh, he was exhibiting the signs. So so in in other words, we don't know. Is yeah. it likely that Arturo had CT? Yes, absolutely. But again, we don't know how it manifested in his personality. Right. So again, these these reports that came out, as you said, just over a decade ago, that maybe there had been some suicidal behavior on his part, that there there doesn't seem to be a lot of basis for that is what you guys found. Yeah, yeah. So I guess to answer your your first question, like what got me into the story, I, you know, come on, it's an amazing story. It's a fascinating story. I had, I was always fascinated with it. And once I, once I felt that I was prepared to get into his story, that's when I started to do the research. And once I started doing the, at least the initial research of like, you know, just adding up the characters, who's to, who's talking about suicide and who isn't. Mm-hmm. I started to notice that it was only really about two to three people who are only talking about Arturo having suicidal tendencies. Um, and that's about it. Like there, yeah. there wasn't many others that, that were talking about it. And I, and I have to say that the people who were talking about his suicide um, benefited from his death. Well, yeah, and, and so people know he was he was found allegedly. We understand uh, hanged. It was his, I think the the strap from his wife's purse, correct? Yes. So in two thousand nine, in Brazil, uh, in Brazil, where Arturo was vacationing with his wife at the time, uh, he was found um, dead on the floor, and the purse strap that uh, he he was allegedly supposed to hang himself with was away from his body. No. And. Um, and the Brazilian investigation, well, there was two. There was an initial one that arrested his wife at the time, saying that there was no signs of forced entry and that uh, the purse strap was probably not the, the, the ligature. Um, but then a new investigator came in and changed everything and said that, uh, no, in fact, it was a suicide, and that, and that he hung uh, on a staircase railing in the apartment for uh, three hours, uh, and then the purse strap broke and he fell down. So it was Brazilian authorities, obviously, then, who had responsibility for this investigation, had jurisdiction uh, around this case. What kind of questions right. are there in your mind about how they handled all of this? Well, I think I'll, what I'll say is I'll go back to the CBC and CBS uh, reporting is that um, when I started to talk to the American investigators who, who went into sort of try to understand what was going on, it became clear to me that that CBC and CBS did not um, they did not talk about some of the forensic evidence that the Americans had, which is to say that the, the Americans found, and the Brazilians admit this, that the purse strap could not hold even half of his weight for more than three seconds. Another important piece of information, too, is that <clears throat> the placement of his body, there's no explanation in, in Newtonian physics how his body could have gotten underneath the breakfast table where he was found. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, so suffice it to say that there there are a lot of questions about the Brazilian investigation. Um, I did find that the Brazilian investigation had um, a lot of missing holes. They didn't provide a toxicology report. They didn't provide a, any kind of forensics report. Um, and they essentially left it to like a best guess is what I would say. Well, what kind of a motive would there be? I mean, there, there are fingers here, I think, as you suggest, being pointed at, at his wife, maybe others involved. Yeah. I mean, what, what reason would there be to, to kill Arturo? Well, we found that um, Arturo, and this is still a mystery to us, Arturo um, signed a new will uh, three weeks before he left for Brazil that cut out his mother and his daughter from a previous relationship and gave everything to his wife and her mother. So this was signed three weeks before he went to Brazil, 
Um, we've never really figured out why he signed this this uh, this new will. Um, but essentially, what happened was after Arturo died, there was there was um, there was no criminal. Uh, uh, it didn't go to the criminal courts. It went only to to uh, civil courts because the matter essentially was based uh, came down to a will. Well, and for people who watch this, I mean, they'll, they'll see all of this laid out, and there is some new information presented in this documentary. So, uh, you know, in terms of public opinion, you know, it might have some impact on how people feel about all of this. But, I mean, th- does something need to come of this? Like, what are you hoping? I mean, is there, does there need for a new investigation, or what, what could come of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I think this is the end of the road. I, I mean, yeah. I can never say never, but I don't think that uh, the Brazilians are interested in opening this up again. Um, I've spoken with the, with the initial prosecutor. They're they're very much siding with the Brazilian authorities. Um, I think for me, what I what I want the public to take away from this is that that in the initial reportings on the story and uh, and in the documentary subsequently, I feel like there are a lo- there was a lot of information that was left out that the public should know about in terms of the forensics behind how Arturo died and. I hope that this, uh, you know, you asked me why did I make this, um, as a just as a as a fan of Arturo and as a documentary filmmaker, I felt as though the way that Arturo was being portrayed later on in the media was an attack on common sense. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope that this documentary does is sort of corrects that narrative and presents more information to the public that they should know about. We'll let people know again, the world premiere is this Saturday, part of the Calgary Underground Film Festival, 4.30 at the Globe Cinema. You'll be there for uh, a Q&A as well. Mm-hmm. Got the Edmonton premiere coming up May 3rd, 6 p.m. at the Metro Cinema, and then uh, this will be available on Super Channel uh, starting May 4th. It's called Thunder, the life and death of Arturo Gotti. Guillaume, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you very much for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Guillaume Carlier, director of Thunder, The Life and Death of Arturo Gotti. So the world premiered this Saturday uh, at the Calgary Underground Film Festival. Guillaume will be there for the Q&A. May 3rd, the Edmonton premiere, and uh, May 4th debuts on Super Channel. Uh, so tragic story, but, but a fascinating one nonetheless. And uh, my goodness, what a warrior Arturo Gotti was. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God. The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.